0: Welcome to the in Vino Fab Podcast. I'm Laura.
1: And I'm Patrice.
0: InVinoFabulum means in wine story, and there are so many tales that need to be told about women from all walks of life and their communities, paired with wine, of course. The InvinoFab Pod is a place to learn and a space to share stories about work, interests, passion projects, issues, and random wine facts. For this episode of the In VinoFab podcast, I'm excited to welcome Leslie D'Souza. Leslie is a student affairs assessment professional who specializes in storytelling with data. She is currently the director of strategic storytelling and digital engagement at Western University's Student Experience Division. After focusing on assessment and storytelling in her two previous roles, Leslie is exploring how data-informed stories can be used to intentionally shift culture, in positive directions using digital engagement best practices. Leslie has held leadership roles at the Canadian Association of College and University Student Services, Caucus, and ACPA, the College Educators International. She's co-authoring an upcoming book, Design Thinking and Student Affairs, to be published in September 2021. Besides her great work in student affairs, she loves gardening, music, and mothering her two little boys. And I'm really excited that you get to listen to our conversation as we talk about ways of knowing and Indigenous storytelling on this episode. Well, welcome to the Invenofab Fab podcast, Leslie. We are so thrilled you can h- stop and have a chat with us on an episode. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Leslie and I go way back to like a bunch of different things. So I was excited to have her come on because um, she formerly had a title storyteller, maybe still <laughs> does, um, but you are someone I look to when I think about narrative writing, narrative self, uh, whether it's through words, visual, um, you are like the storyteller I would turn to. And I had some questions when I was working on something in higher ed and I knew that I could always go to you and kind of bounce ideas off you. So. How did you get into that work in the first place and create that title of yourself back in the day? Yeah,
1: I, it, it's a great question. It's a great story, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so the I grew up in student affairs. I, like many people who work in student affairs, I was a hyper-involved student leader. Uh, I volunteered for orientation. I was a residence assistant. I became a peer helper on campus and worked in student life uh, at the University of Guelph. And while I was there, I, I started planning orientation. I went to this conference and I heard about some who worked in student affairs, and I started growing up expecting that I was going to follow that linear path in student affairs. You know, I was going to get experience and work in student activities, student leadership, and I was going to progress into, like, managing programs and, uh, you know, like, all of the the kind of, like, scaffolded leadership pathway that you kind of expect as a grad student. And um, I started getting later into my career, and I got this really deep interest in assessment and evaluation. Uh, And that somewhat had to do with the fact that my undergraduate degree is in biology. And so I was always looking to design the perfect experiment (laughs) to understand the impact of the work that we were doing uh, and trying to figure out like what's the best way we can test that and how can we objectively figure out like whether or not our programs are actually making a really big difference to our students or is it just the students that self-select to go to our programs are always more likely to succeed. Um, So that's how I kind of got into assessment and, and learning and I, um, I chatted with uh, a lot of colleagues around how we could operationalize that across our across our division. Canada was a little bit uh, further behind the U.S. in terms of developing student affairs assessment positions and having teams who focused on that. Um, but I had a, a very amazing uh, senior student affairs officer. Uh, When I was at Ryerson, uh, Dr. John Austin and uh, I kind of went to him and pitched. I said, "Like, I I don't really know what I want to do next, but I think I want to get into like assessment and evaluation. Like, how do we, how can we create space to do that? We need to do it. Here are the things that we're we're missing." And we had been having lots of conversations about assessment. And so John said, "Yeah, no, I need you to kind of like go away and like dig into assessment." Uh, And I was just about to go on to maternity leave, and I said, "Okay, I can do that." And I went away and I joined every student affairs assessment organization I could. I I inserted myself, I think, into supporting the research uh, and assessment community of practice with um, with Jeff Burrow and Rick Ezekiel. I wasn't even like, I wasn't even elected to do that or chosen or anything. I just like, I just want to help. It's like, How do I get involved in this? And, uh, and so I, I kind of jumped in with both feet and came back to this, this um, opportunity with assessment. I, I presented at a conference, I actually brought my baby to that conference in Montreal, which was really exciting and weird. Uh, but that's a story for another time. Uh, it was a very interesting example of like mothering in workplaces though. Uh, so anyways, I was, I was at that conference and on the train ride home, I was sitting with, uh, John and he was said, you know, like, I'm really excited about this assessment vision. I think we're like, we're going to create kind of like, you know, this contract role and be like, you wait. I'm happy for you to step in and, and kind of lead the way on this. Uh, and he said, I was thinking about this title of like, I was thinking about storytelling. What do you think? And I, it hadn't occurred to me before. I was kind of like, Oh gosh, that's very interesting. Like, yeah, I can, I can definitely see connections there and like, let me, let me sit with that. Let me think about it. And so inevitably I started to explore the concept of storytelling and how it applies in all different shapes and fashions in our work. I'm the daughter of a librarian. So um, story meant something to me deeply as a, as a person from a long time before that conversation. And so I had a lot of hooks to hang storytelling on. Um, And then inevitably when you start to dig into storytelling as a, as a methodology, as a, as an ethic, um, you start to learn about indigenous pedagogy because that is a really key tenet. That, that's the earliest form of storytelling with a purpose of, of teaching and learning comes from, uh, indigenous pedagogies from all over the world. So, uh, that was, it was really transformative. Storytelling was actually my pathway into decolonization and then like equity and and decolonization in assessment and what is it what are different ways of knowing and what do they look like and how do we value different kinds of knowledge it just it kind of was it blew up my impression of what it meant to assess and what it meant to look at impact and to understand the meaning and the the way that our work happens um, so yeah it just there's tons of things there's tons of rabbit holes I could go down uh, but storytelling is now like built into the fiber of how I do all of my work.
0: I love that. Okay. Let's back it up a bit. We, we, full disclosure, this is like a Canadian content uh, episode. We could actually be on the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So (laughs) Leslie is from Canada and we went to the same undergrad. And if you weren't infused with leadership development or getting involved on a campus and getting active and advocating for uh, yourself as a student, for administrators, for faculty or staff, then uh, what were you doing at the University of Guelph? Because we were really involved in (laughs) whatnot. So it's not to my (laughs) surprise that um, we had crossed paths, not at Guelph, but later on at that conference. So in Montreal, I do um, remember seeing your session and I do recall uh, just the the passion you had of explaining what things are and the ways of knowing. I love how you put that is because we interpret things in so many ways and you are the kind of person that looks at different lens perspectives, opinions, and sides of things. And that makes sense why you're coming from the biologist's side of you to investigate it, but also to explain it in the nuanced ways, I think has been really impactful in the work you've seen. And I didn't realize you had a baby at that conference. Maybe I did. (laughs) Um, You had... Really, uh, that really blows me away because we forget all the other labor and side work moms do when we do our professional work. So that's just amazing to me. I can't believe that.
1: Yeah, it takes a village. So luckily that year there was a ton of people who went to that conference from Ryerson, and Mm -hmm. so I had a I had a lot of support uh, because I was there by myself. It was just me and my nine month old, and uh, I actually did a, a. really transformative presentation for me anyway uh, with uh, with the colleague Jen Gonzalez at that about women in leadership. And so I had one of our students that was attending the conference and was kind of babysitting in the corner. And uh, at one point in the the presentation, Marcus couldn't wait. Uh, Like he couldn't last the whole presentation. So I had to like strap him in and feed him while we finished the presentation. And it was on International Women's Day. So it was just, it was like this amazing kind of like representation of you can do different things and there's not, there shouldn't be rules and constraints. Um, That's not to say it was easy. And that's not to say that, you know, you got to do everything all at once. I think it was a really important learning experience for me about like priorities and balance and figuring out fit. Um, I definitely hadn't intended to bring my baby to that conference when I booked myself and registered for it. Um, you know, all everyone told me like by nine months I would be able to leave my baby with my partner and and he would be eating actual food, but he was not <laughs> by right. that point. So right. I was like, well, I guess he's coming with me.
0: <laughs> uh, that shows your flexibility and and what I think more moms do than not. Like you are agile enough that you could say, well, I'm going to bring you. Like I think of the uh, UN leaders who uh, from around the world that straps babies and a baby Bjorn at the you know at the delegation meetings. And like, we just don't think about that as much in North America. Like that's just like babies are part of the life and different fabrics, but sometimes we try to compartmentalize. And I think that's really hard to do. Um, I don't know how many moms do it. Like, I think they're all amazing. And maybe we put the pressure on moms to be super and saying Not all the time are things super. And there is a struggle in there somewhere and this let's get real about it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah, it was, um, uh- it was good. I think before that I was always worried about, you know, like what am I sacrificing? If I, if I have kids, am I sacrificing my career? If I focus too much on my career, am I sacrificing my ability to like have a, have a well-connected, healthy family. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that exercise really taught me a lot about it's, it's okay to prioritize different things at different times. And, you know, focusing on one thing at one time does not mean that you can't come back and focus on something else later. Um, but what I did learn was like, you really can't focus on all the things all the time, <laughs> all at once. Um, that's unhealthy. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs>
0: um, I, I think you're called it right. It's kind of like we're in different seasons of our lives almost or um, someone gave me like the four burner analogy, like the two front burners are your priorities at the time on the stove. And so sometimes yeah. things have to go to the back burner and simmer well, you cook the the front two things that you're working on, and in, 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 in your world, it could be family, it could be elder care, it could be your mental well being. Who knows? Like, who yep. knows what's your on your health? <laughs> yeah, like, your health.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're, we're all only temporarily able, so you know. This like, is true. We have to think about that and and care for ourselves. That it's been been a good lesson for me too. Like, I'm getting older now, and like I'm having like health things happen that I'm like, oh my god, like. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta take care of this thing that carries me around. Wow. <laughs> right, <laughs> we're not just blobs. You, we're not. Just you feel brinks. invincible for a long part of your youth, and then you start to get older, and you're like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> maintenance is important."
0: This is true. <laughs> Something else you brought up, I, I do want you to talk about because I'm not sure how much our listeners are aware of Indigenous pedagogy when it comes mm-hmm. to storytelling. And I don't know if you want to unpack that a little bit of w- what made you. Un- unpack this further, understand it more, and dive into this area, focus for storytelling.
1: It was, uh, it was the anniversary, it was an important anniversary of Canada's establishment. And there were lots of conversations happening uh, around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, that had been formed. Uh, and that was, a, a Can- the Canadian government formed that commission to interrogate uh, Canadian history and treatment of Indigenous peoples. Uh, and so there was a lot of history that I was learning for, in some cases, for the first time, uh, because I didn't learn about it in school. They they didn't teach it uh, to a large degree. So I luckily my mom, librarian and a school teacher. And so she had taught me about the Canadian residential schooling system. And we had we'd watched films and we had um, read books as I was growing up. Um, she took a lot of care in, in having those conversations uh, but I grew up in Oshawa, and uh, it was uh, on the Anishinaabe lands, and we had the Mississaugas of Scugog Island uh, right almost in town. And I still grew up feeling like Indigenous peoples were didn't exist and were were part of our history, and um, and so that that because that was the way that that it was taught in schools. And so when I grew up, and and we started having conversations in Student Affairs around the importance of supporting Indigenous students. And at that time when I was learning about it, it was Aboriginal students. And so the names are important. It was really important to think about what language we're using and why and and how that impacts um, different communities. So uh, we were having those conversations and I still felt like it wasn't really about me because I didn't know about it and I felt uncomfortable, um, you know, stepping into those spaces and getting things wrong. And so I think there was a lot of reasons that I kind of stayed away from practicing a lot of the things I had learned about equity. Like in, when I was at the University of Guelph, there was a lot of theory of equity being taught. Uh, I learned about language and the importance of language. And there were, there were lots of different things I learned about you know, safe, positive space. And mm-hmm. um, it, was, it was great and it planted really important seeds, but it was all in theory and not in practice. And what I mean by that is, I embody a lot of privilege. Um, I'm a white settler woman, uh, cisgender, and I didn't understand how to be uncomfortable in spaces. Uh, and I, I it, so I avoided spaces at times where I was uncomfortable because I felt like I, in some ways, I was making excuses. Like I didn't want to do harm. Um, I didn't want to hurt people because I was ignorant. And so I, I kept saying, you know, like, I gotta go away and learn about that. I got to go read some things or I got to, you know... And I remember sitting down and having a conversation with a colleague um, who is Indigenous and he kind of, he brought me up short and I, I was explaining to him, like, you know, I, I want to learn more about this, but I'm really nervous. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to get it wrong and I don't want to hurt people and I don't want to, you know, take up space um, and, and, you know, inappropriately sideline anybody else. And, and so, like, I'm nervous about talking about it, teaching it, doing it. And he said to me, you know, that's crap. It's a total cop out. Um, Mm -hmm. It's your job. You embody privilege and you have power. And so it's your job to be uncomfortable and make mistakes and making mistakes and the fear associated with making mistakes cannot be the reason that you don't do the work. And so I was like, yes, really true. (laughs) And so I think the key thing I learned in terms of stepping into spaces and learning about Indigenous pedagogy and building relationships uh, with Indigenous colleagues and students was I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to get things wrong. That's going to happen. So I have to figure out how to learn how to apologize, how to make it right, and uh, and how to move forward. And then in terms of learning about Indigenous pedagogy, it's all about understanding my social location, mm-hmm. Um and, and like, this is what I've learned from those who have taught me. Um, so I, I'm sure it's not true everywhere. But but what I understand from those who have taught me is that, you know, I, I need to understand my own personal context. I need to understand my social location and how that contextualizes all of the learnings and the knowledge that I have when I transfer it to anyone else um, and how that knowledge is collectively owned. I, I, I'm not an expert in stuff and I don't get to be the owner of the things I've learned because there have been so many people who've contributed to that knowledge along the way. Way. Um, so it's really important to credit that. Um, I, I think about this in the context of biology and a lot of things we understand about um, uh, my experience in like, you know, objective science and, you know, like the mm. positivist science uh, that you look at a uh, research study and you read like the title, the name of the primary researcher, and uh, it doesn't tell you anything about them. So you read yeah. that study, you read about, you know, whatever it was, the experiment they designed but you don't know anything about that person, where they're from, why they cared about that topic, some of the context they bring to their analysis, how that might have changed how they do their analysis. Um, And when you start to look at storytelling as a pedagogy, you start to understand the context of the storyteller is actually one of the most important parts of the story because it's unethical for us not to tell people our investment in the things that we are sharing. Right. Um, and I think about that when I look at, you know, news online, you look at like fake news and everything. What are what are the agendas that are behind telling those stories that we're not disclosing? And how are we then weaponizing that information to accomplish something by, you know, hijacking human psychology? So if, I think that when, if we look at storytelling as a pedagogy, it really lays the groundwork for us to understand how to ethically interface with knowledge and with other people through relationships. Um, I, one of my favorite books about this is by um, Sean Wilson uh, called Research is Ceremony. And it's, it's a lot about indigenous pedagogy and the knowledge. Of the, and it, the whole book is written in this really amazing way where he writes academically in one font and then writes additional context in a different font in the form of letters to his kids. And you're supposed to read the book through and then come back and read the prologue again because prologue also adds different context at the end so it's circular right like the knowledge is circular once you get to the end of the journey the beginning of the journey has different contexts and means something different um so it's it's really a beautiful way of moving through the world if you start to dig into different types of indigenous pedagogy and understanding how that shapes how we know things and who who we elevate in our in our society as people who understand and know things and who we let teach us I think you're right. I
0: I think this topic and area, I was pretty ignorant to as a Canadian. Um, residential schools went on until the 90s. And that's something that just blew me away when the reconciliation project uh, came about and that 150 years of reconciliation, the work is still ongoing. And so thank you for bringing that up. Also, there are points in conferences we've gone to, like you and I don't work in student affairs, per se anymore. We are a little adjacent to that in our roles and what we do, but we've probably taken with us, like the whole idea of recognizing the land you sit on. So like I'm in Bothell, I'm amongst where the Sammamish people were at the coast of Salish, native American tribe. I didn't know this until I, was brought up to a conference and we had always given respect for the ground, the lands that we're going to share knowledge on. And that those kind of um, acknowledgements, the beginning of conferences or events or meetings were really profound that I don't think I ever recall that ever happening in K-12 education. And to this time, I think people still don't recognize the importance of the land that comes to be before us and who owned the land as i am also a white cis settler um i wouldn't even think about using that term until you brought it up but it's true we took over the land and i'm on a new land in america now it made me also think about uh there's a botanist robin wall kimmerer uh wrote a great book called braiding sweetgrass tying in their scientific background with also native um roots and understandings of the nation of uh, the the Potawatomi nation and you're right like it could get awkward I'm probably pronouncing something wrong (laughs) but people will correct you and call out and also teach if you mess up but getting to know some of those indigenous practices and balancing the scientific uh knowing with the like indigenous way of knowing is also really important to do
1: Yeah. It's. Um, I think that learning about the land that you're on, I, a lot of people are kind of like, well, what's like, but I, you know, it's Canada now. So like what, I don't understand. Are we supposed to give the land back? Like there's a lot of questions I get asked Yeah. Um, when I'm, when I'm, and I'm trying to help people along on a journey sometimes. Like they're not in a, it's never bad to ask questions. And that comes from a real place of, you know, like I don't understand. And if I can't ask questions, then how do I move forward? So I try to make space for those questions, but I think it's really important to understand that there's a difference in the land that we're on. Like some of the land that we're on was what we call unseated um, and and some of the land that we're on is treated. And so what that means is in unceded land, it means that we literally just took it and right. we just moved in and like settled on it, started building stuff and there was no agreement. There was no there was no understanding that was built between the people who came to the land and the people who were already living there. Uh, and then in terms of treated land, it means that we sat down and we hammered out an agreement of how we were going to share resources and how we wh- who was going to do what and how we were going to respect each other. Um, In many cases, we have not respected those treaties. Um, We have not, uh, in many cases, uh, I'm not going to say across the board, because I honestly am not entirely sure about all of the treaties that exist across Canada and how those treaties are still enacted. But in many cases, we don't adhere to the agreements and we are unsustainably using resources and and taking more than was agreed upon. Uh, To the detriment not only of the community, but of the earth. Uh, so I think about, I think about like the sustainability is something that's built into a lot of pede- the indigenous pedagogy, the, like the, um, you, you don't take more than can regrow and you don't take more, you don't take so much that someone someone else doesn't have anything. And that's really the case when you look at the Dish with One Spoon Treaty is, is the, tr- uh, the treaty that covers a lot of the greater Toronto area. And it's this really beautiful agreement, which basically highlights that, you know, that we look we, we look at the land as a dish, um, and and that that contains the resources to sustain everybody. And so the agreement was that the peoples that live on that land are agreeing to share the resources and and always have the dish full enough to to help have everybody be able to have something. And that there's one spoon that we take turns with. You know that it's we're we're all agreeing to take turns and make sure that there's enough for everyone, uh, which means no one no one community takes more than anyone else and to the detriment of everyone else. There's a lot to learn from that. And I think that we're starting to get to the point now in the world that we're, we're looking around and seeing that there's something really wrong with how how we kind of exploit resources and how we treat each other, uh, how we treat the earth. And um, and I think there's a lot to learn from Indigenous pedagogy, which really lays out, you know, th- these are the ways we live sustainably with with Mother Earth. You know, like we look at the the earth isn't a thing we own. We don't like carve out chunks of it and say like, this is part's mine and what I do here doesn't affect anyone else. We understand that everything's connected. And if I treat my part of the land badly, it affects everyone around me. And if I look at the earth as like something that sustains me as a mother, then it really changes what you feel able to do on that land and how you respect that land and how you treat it. Um, I think we need to all reshape how we think about where we are how we treat each other and how we treat the resources that assisting us. I
0: love that you've shared that it's not just the ecosystems connected, but we also have to have a a way of caring with that system and how how we give back. Thank you for sharing that. I will say, Leslie's not just like some socialist Canadian because <laughs> he's part of a capitalist society. Socialism exists in <laughs> capitalism, so it's not just um, in countries that we know that are recognizing more of a social capitalist. Economies. I I think it is thinking about what you said is taking more than we need, uh, always wanting more, bigger, better instead of what's reusable. And what is um, going to sustain to the next generation? I think these are the questions we really need to ask and answer ourselves sooner. Otherwise, Mother Nature is not going to be happy with us and has not been happy with us um, for, for the ecosystems, the environment, the climate, the land is all changing. And mm-hmm. it be the same one we initially spooned out. I love that um, treaty yeah. and analogy.
1: And I think I think the what I've learned about storytelling and one of the examples that I often give uh in terms of how storytelling can go wrong is if we lean too heavily into like fear, because storytelling is all about emotions. It's all about sharing empathy and like collectively motivating um, everybody to do something together. And it has to do with emotional connection. That's what brings us together. And so if we use fear to do that, it might work once. I think about even how we communicated around the COVID pandemic or even around climate change, you know, like people take it seriously cuz they're like oh my gosh this is a really big deal and i'm really scared of it yeah but then as soon as like as soon as that one action that one collective action like i'm scared of this if people get too afraid they stop acting and instead they start hiding from it and they start looking for reasons to not believe that it's true because it becomes too big and too overwhelming and so you actually undermine your ability to solve the problem because people are scared of it now and so i think about climate change as one of those kind of unfortunate storytelling examples where We did a really good job of sharing how terrifying climate change is and and the impacts that it's going to have. And now everybody's so scared of it and feels powerless to do anything about it. And so there's a lot of people just ignoring it. Uh, but the, there's so much to hope for. There is so much technology out there. There are things that just need the right grants that need the right people supporting it. There's all kinds of, like we can crowdsource and fund things now that didn't used to be a thing. So yeah. there's all kinds of solutions on the horizon and you know, need is the mother of ingenuity. So there are tons of reasons to hope. And I think that I, I truly believe that there are solutions to our biggest problems and we just have to all get on on board and want to solve them together. Um, and that's, that's coming.
0: Yeah. I think we could do hard things. It it seems like an overwhelming thing, but it's uh, knowing what we can do. Like who thought we'd shift the mindset of uh, people wearing seatbelts to smoking to (laughs) like, there's all these things. Like we can change behaviors. We can shift the mindsets. We could shift our practices these small little shifts and whatever we do is going to help the bigger because it does seem daunting. It seems like that's too big. I can't deal with that, Leslie. I can't. But you're right. If we start talking about it in actionable, small ways that we could start changing the things we do in practice and the outcomes and impacts, like those little stories are
1: really important to tell. Yeah. And I think that in, so the only thing about this is that social media has fundamentally changed how culture shifts. And so there used to be things that, you know, you get a collective group of people that would believe something new and that would happen organically over time. And it would happen through relationship. And now a lot of it happens on social media. And what that means is that we have, we have delegated our control of shifting our own culture in directions that we uh, are, we associate our values with. We've delegated that to algorithms designed by private corporations and so I think there are very important and real conversations we need to have about how much control we allow private corporations to have on things like cultural shift values and human psychology. Um, because the fact of the matter is uh, it's 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 a I don't think that it's being I don't I don't necessarily believe that everything is as machiavellian as we're sometimes led to believe, but I think that when you're approaching things from a corporate um capitalist lens, sometimes we can struggle with making sure that things are also aligned with our values as a as a society and as a culture. And so we elect officials into government, hopefully to support that. But in some ways social media has been undermining that because we can't even tell who's actually real people on some of these platforms anymore. So they're just I'm not arguing for like censorship or control of the platforms. I just think we need to have more conversations about what that means and how we mitigate the private interests of individual companies from our societal interests and our values-based interests as a as a culture.
0: Yeah, there's lots of blurred lines and gray areas that I think are untapped. Yeah, and you and I both met on social networks, and they're they're glorious. You can definitely form communities, and you can do really cool things and meet interesting folks yeah. and uh, be empowered. But I think you're right; it's not it's not looking the same these days in those platforms.
1: I just think. Just, I just think we to have the conversation. Like I think about, um, you know, there's, there's regulations on like different kinds of media that we consume. And some of mm-hmm. those regulations are there just to make sure there's balanced representations of things. So like I, I think that, you know, we just need to have that conversation and figure out like how do we want to manage this as a culture? And what makes sense for us uh, to make sure that we're moving in the direction that we collectively want to move in? Because um, yeah. I, I don't know if we're intentional enough about it right now.
0: Yeah. This is not a fad folks. This is like beyond a decade of us using these things and it's not going away and there's nuances in communication and how we share that aren't being addressed. So I'm, I'm with you hundred percent.
1: Oh yeah. And the problem now too is there's enough data out there that like big data is a is a huge industry because it works. Um, you can you can map. There is enough information out there now that you can map and and feed different groups of people what they need to hear to take an action that you want them to take. Um, and it's it's a pretty simple formula actually uh, to to you know give somebody something to either hope for or be afraid of, and then get them to act on act on that. Yeah,
0: it's a powerful double edged sword. It can go yeah. cut either way for uh, good and bad. Yeah, there's such a um, on this fluidity of where we go in our communication is key and like you would know better than anyone I've probably talked to about this um I wonder how this plays out as we think about like a couple other things you and I want to chat about was this intersectional identity um and I've <laughs> I've stepped away and I don't know I've I've been questioning what feminist leadership looks like and I know you, this is one of the topics you brought up because I think it's very white and I am very concerned with a certain brand of feminism that's out there. And 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 I feminism I see it as equality, but there aren't all equals and not everyone comes to the table at the same level. Uh when you're talking about anyone who's a woman or identifies as a woman, non-binary, that might be listening to this podcast.
1: I've I've struggled with feminism uh over the years for for a few different reasons. And one the largest one of them is that there is largely a non-intersectional view of what feminism means uh, in terms of any other identities. Uh, There's really like, you know, the the feminism that I grew up learning about was white feminism. And um and it it undercut in some ways my, well in a lot of ways, my ability to critically engage with some of the the behaviors that I was embodying. Especially like, and again, it came from indigenous pedagogy when I started really grappling with what it meant to be uncomfortable and apologize and know when I'd done wrong and not make it about me. Um, And like, I'm not always great at it. Sometimes I still fail. Like there's times where I like, I'm grappling with my own emotional reaction about something and I'll say or do something because I'm like, I'm hurt or I'm I'm, like, why do you think I'm a bad person? You know? And, and I gotta, I'm getting faster at it, (laughs) at being able to be like, that's not an appropriate reaction or like, that's definitely my business. That's definitely my work. That's not your work. So I shouldn't be feeding that to you. Um, so there's, there's a lot of questions I have around how women treat each other, um, especially when they're in leadership spaces. Yeah. I think that women, I've seen examples where women talk a lot of crap about other women and I've been part of it. Like I'm not, I am not some perfect woman in leadership. Like definitely have screwed up so much. (laughs) And I I think that that's an important part of the story. It's important for us to acknowledge that like, I am not out here saving the world. Like I'm screwing up at least as much as I'm doing important work. And uh, I like, I've had a lot of teachers along the way who have called me out when I needed to be. And then like, what, what the heck was this? Why would you say and do that? And, and I, I really struggled for a long time around, you know, this, this, uh, this guilt that I was raised with. I was born and raised Catholic. And so the guilt is a very deep part of my <laughs> <Right>. upbringing. <laughs> and so there was a lot of like, I, my anxiety would take over and I'd be like, I feel so bad. and I feel so guilty and now I'm scared. And like, I, and I, I, I need somebody to make me feel better. I need you to tell me it's okay. I need you to like, forgive me. And, um, I think those are the problems I actually see with like, White feminism is that the, there's an inability for us to stew in being uncomfortable when we've made a mistake. It's a constant effort, for sure. And there are different things going on at different times. Sometimes I'm better at sometimes I'm not. like I've been really crappy at it through the pandemic. I've definitely, you know, been asking for a lot of forgiveness and and being, being frustrated and unempathetic probably on the other end. But I'm trying every day. Uh, and and I think that we need to talk more and more about, how intersections affect lived experiences? How, how is my experience different than the experience of, of a, woman in co- a woman of color in leadership or of a, a woman with a disability? How do those things play out differently? And, and what am I doing with the privilege that I enjoy to make sure that there is space for that person in conversations and, and in leadership decisions? Um, and again, it comes back to this, and I keep coming back to indigenous pedagogy because it's all there. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but like, if we understand that knowledge is collectively owned, then it shouldn't matter. I should be able to give that space to somebody else and I should feel comfortable like, you know, providing providing cover for somebody else to have an opportunity or to make sure that there's a level playing field, uh, knowing that I'm going to have other opportunities or knowing that like, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to find my way because I have additional tools in my invisible backpack of privilege. Yeah. Yeah. feel definitely like I'm on a soapbox here. <laughs> no,
0: it's, it's good. I will say this is something I've been thinking about. And the other part of it's failing is also learning. And I think if you haven't learned about intersectionality, not new uh, term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw 30 years ago. Um, it's something we talked about uh, back in episode. I had uh, episode 22. I had Uh, the sister circles on and thinking about how knowledge is shared um amongst black women um amongst indigenous amongst different races people of color um neurodiverse folks to people with disability like i just think of so much more of how we seek knowledge it's it's layered and there's just so many different contexts like it's we're not just these one uh, layers that we aren't like putting people into buckets is a common practice um, because it's just easier. And that's how we identify uh, things, both uh, I think animals in the wild to people out on the streets. And there's some limitations if we don't recognize the intersection of um, how some of these movements have not moved forward. If there weren't uh, black women at part of these early, I think, feminist movements, I think of uh, the drag transgender uh, LGBTQ community, moving things forward
1: for more women than not. Like, and it's not always. Brought oh, it's, it's a huge pattern throughout. Like every civil rights movement really right. exists. There's a huge pattern. There's
0: a huge forgetting, forgetting of, and I think in the last year, uh, besides COVID, there has been around the world a racial reckoning of sorts of histories and what histories. Are being revisioned and and ones that are being retold now that I think is really powerful. Like um, June uh, Juneteenth is going to be an official holiday here in Washington, and it's not something that many people around the U.S. had known about or talked about until last year, unless you grew up in Texas or somewhere in the South. This is something that wasn't talked about, Um, but now it it means something, and it's it's going to be more meaningful in other places of work and other organizations. I don't know. I'm still learning. Like I'm 41. Is that whole time? And I like I think it's okay to recognize that
1: you don't know and I don't know everything. (laughs) 100. That that's the beauty of it. Like there in when you when you start to understand, like knowledge is collective, and I'm like I'm like a walking data computer, right? I'm just walking through the world, making meaning of stuff. And there's a very particular assortment of inputs that I'm gathering because I'm me. And, and so I can understand things in a different way and bring a different perspective to different knowledge. But The knowledge isn't mine. I can, my perspective is the way I, the way it is mine, but people with, you know, award-winning so-and-so in my Twitter bio, and like, I'm an expert in this. and I'm, That doesn't elevate your your knowledge more than my ability to know that. Like it's, I think we, we do a lot of things in terms of hierarchy and, and I, I see that in how we approach assessments, how we value different ways of knowing, like how we value quantitative ways of knowing, over qualitative ways of knowing. Um, and we, we lose all the context around that. It's just really about trying to elevate somebody's social status above somebody else's. Um, if I can call myself an expert and I can share enough facts and like amass enough knowledge, then I get to benefit from it more than other people. And I think that that's, that's part of the whole problem with how we look at each other in the world and how we relate to each other. Because I really do believe that, you know, a, a win for a woman is a win for me. And so if I can lift up another woman at work, I'm going to do that. It's hard sometimes because I think that we are trained from an early age that like it's a zero-sum game. And so if, if there's only going to be so many of us who succeed and it's going to be me and not you. And therefore, we we kind of attack each other. Yeah. It's uh it's really unhealthy. <laughs> but I agree. That's a call out. Let's stop doing that, ladies.
0: Please, let's stop doing that. Um, no, this is Leslie, you and I could talk forever. We're probably I'm gonna probably be on again. Um, I haven't even asked you about like how we want to record our moms because they're really important to us. Yes. You know, speaking of Mother Earth, our own mothers are really important to us. I want to do a rundown of things um, that maybe this will be kind of a quick response. That we can offer our listeners some pieces and nuggets. So one of them is what's a good piece of uh, res- like a read or resource you'd recommend listeners check out. You mentioned one book already. Is there mm-hmm. anything else that if they want to know more about indigenous storytelling or things that you've learned along
1: the way? Uh, Dr. Sheila Coat Meek and Dr. Taima Motkring have great publications out there. I know there's one is uh, Colonized Classrooms, is one that's on my bookshelf. They've just published a new book. If you want to learn more about uh, the Indigenous ways of knowing and Indigenous experiences, mm-hmm. those are both great books to read. In terms of, there's a ton out there about storytelling. I think that I, I trust it more if. if There is actual work done to understand some of the roots of Indigenous storytelling um, rather than some of the buzzier kind of tomes (laughs) that have to do more with like, how do we market using stories? I think I I have a book coming out (laughs) later this year, which is going to be on introducing design thinking as as an ethic in student affairs. And that's with uh, co-authors. Uh, Julia Smead and uh, Dr. Gavin Henning, and uh, so that's coming out in September. And there's a there's a significant amount in there about storytelling, Great. and and how that can become part of your cycle of assessment, and and how stories are actually really important to not only conducting assessment, and like we can gather stories as data, but also in packaging the resulting data to accomplish something intentional in the culture. So culture shift isn't a mystery. You can you can use stories intentionally to do good. Um, but we might have to have you back on for that
0: conversation. That sounds exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Is there a story
1: that might be resonating with you these days? I don't know if anyone has read the Marrow Thieves, but it is a fabulous book. If because uh, we've talked a lot about indigeneity, and uh, it's uh, it's an, a really really engaging read that that gives you some good perspective on um, some of the realities of indigeneity in north america cool i'll check that out uh if we
0: were to gather in person again once our borders let us uh and we're going to have a, a glass of wine or something what would be in your cup Ooh, good
1: question i've been drinking a lot of in lately just a lovely canadian winery and um i'm very partial to ice wine
0: <laughs> sweet you
1: have a sweet palate. well and it's funny though because i love eating it with spicy food so if you go to the ice wine festival in niagara on the lake um There's a, some very interesting pairings. So I had like this really like hot and spicy mac and cheese with uh, this amazing, fabulous Vidal Ice wine from it in, in a skillet and it was divine. It's very, very lovely.
0: Way to crush our thoughts of it! It only being a dessert wine. So now I'm gonna have to check it out and meet it's you. Back great with home. spicy food. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to meet you back home then, one day <laughs> when we're allowed to gather. Okay, good. Is there
1: something bringing you joy right now, or something making you smile? My garden. My garden is making me smile. And my kids, I think I was really scared for them during the pandemic. I was really worried about like what that impact would be. And just, they wake up every day with a smile and they're just finding new ways to enjoy life. I'm really grateful. I have two of them and they can occupy each other a bit, <laughs> and they're close in age. Uh, and they're, they're, they're finding joy every day, which calms me because it, it helps me understand like, they're going to be okay. Their kids are resilient. They're going to be okay. And so am I. And my garden is blooming. so.
0: I'm jealous about your garden and I love that your boys are bringing you joy. Uh, Leslie, this will not be the last conversation. I'll put a link where folks can connect with you and I'll be back on. We have more to talk about. I knew this would happen. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and have a conversation with you about lots of things and more to
1: come. Awesome. Thanks so much. I love connecting with you, Laura. It's so fun. To catch the next episode, be sure to subscribe to InVinoFab wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InVinoFab and we'll always welcome comments and messages sent by tweet, private message, or email at InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. Cheers! Cheers!